All right, good morning. All right. Well, welcome to Hope Community Church. I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you can join us. For those of you who are here in person and those of you who are joining us online, uh, before we get to our message this morning, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We ask that you would forgive us our sins as we come to you to hear your word. May your word sanctify us, edify us, equip us, Father. May we humbly submit ourselves to your instruction. We ask that your spirit that dwells within us would help us in that process. That we caught up in daydreams, that we are the anxieties, the worries, the burdens of this world would not weigh on us so heavily that we cannot hear your word that will encourage us this morning, Father. So, Father, we ask that you would help us in that endeavor so that we would glorify you in all that we do. We ask this by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so go ahead and open up to 1 Kings chapter 8. So this, this is the second week that we're in chapter 8, and we'll spend one more week um, in chapter 8 next week. Uh, there's a lot going on in this uh, chapter. Um, should You guys want me to wait? Is my mic on? Want me to wait? I'm good. All right. Everybody can hear me, right? Great. So we're in the midst of Solomon dedicating and celebrating the completion of God's temple. Last week, we spoke about the significance of the temple uh, then and now, as well as the difference between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And if you're wondering what the connection is uh, with that, between those two, uh, just check out the sermon from last week. Uh, this week, we are in verses 12 through 53 of chapter 8. These verses follow the temple being filled with a dark cloud, signifying the presence of God. They also give for us one of the most significant prayers in the Old Testament for the people of Israel, and that prayer this morning is our focus. Be sure to keep your Bibles open uh, to 1 Kings 8 and to our passage. If you don't have a Bible, we have them uh, underneath some of the seats scattered throughout and a small stack in the back by the coffee. But keep them open uh, and stay at that passage because we are going to be breaking this text up in, in a variety of segments and we will be reading the text, discussing it, reading the text, and so we will be going back and forth rather quickly. Any passage uh, or verse that I will read or reference outside of our main passage will be provided for you on the screen. So let's go ahead and begin with the first two verses of our passage, verses 12 through 13. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. So remember the context here. Consider the stage that is before us, the stage before Solomon. Right? It's the seventh month, right? It's the month of Ethanim, and this is during the Feast of Tabernacles. King Solomon and Israel, along with the Levites and priests, have offered countless sacrifices of oxen and sheep and have moved everything to include the Ark of the Covenants into the temple. And in doing so, the glory of Yahweh has filled the temple and has filled the temple as such that the priests can no longer do their work. So here Solomon before a throng of Israelites and before the priests and before, before the glory of Yahweh. And perhaps the people are wondering what's going on. So as a wise and righteous king, he encourages the priests and the people before him that the cloud is a good thing. He does this by of Yahweh. 
Solomon is most likely considering the past events that Israel has experienced in their history, of which Yahweh has presented himself as a cloud. Think of Yahweh at Mount Sinai, or the cloud that was with Israel during the wilderness, during their wandering, during the 40 years. Events that, in light of the Feast of Tabernacles, would be fresh in the mind of Solomon and most of the Israelites. So Solomon points this out, reminds the people this should be expected. This should not be uh, too much of a surprise, as magnificent as it is. So let's continue. Let's read verses 14 through 21 to see what happens next. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your hearts to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your hearts. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So Solomon now turns, he faces the assembly of Israel, and with the people standing, he blesses Yahweh. This is like our call to worship. When we gather and we consider why we have gathered, we stand as we enter into a time of worship. And in doing so, Solomon reminds Israel of God's faithfulness to them all these years, all for his goodness, for delivering them out of Egypt and providing them a a place of rest and a place of permanence of which Yahweh will dwell, as Yahweh promised centuries ago. The bulk of this blessing uh, is rooted in Solomon's uh, speaking of the Davidic covenant, which Yahweh made with Solomon's father, uh, David, back in 2 Samuel 7. But the key thing to note here is that the Davidic covenant is not like a novel covenant. It's not like a, a thing that sits on its own apart from everything else, completely disconnected from the other purposes and plans of God. Rather, it's connected further in the past to God's graciousness, to God's faithfulness, that the Davidic covenant is actually in part in how God is fulfilling this day that they are celebrating. For from that day that God delivered Israel out of Egypt and led them through the Red Sea, that's when the Davidic covenant was planned. That's when this day of temple celebration was determined by God. When we talked about this briefly last week when we uh, quoted, uh, or referenced, I should say, Exodus 15, 17. And we'll read it again. This is a verse that comes out of the Song of Moses as the Israelites are leaving Egypt. As they are fleeing the Egyptians, they sing this song. And on verse 17, they sing, You will bring them in, them being people of Israel, people of God, and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And so Solomon has brought this to mind. He has made this connection as to why they're gathering. He's called to mind the faithfulness of God. Now, having done this, Solomon begins to enter into this prayer to Yahweh. And let's begin looking at how this prayer uh, starts. A prayer given in light of God's faithfulness. Let's start by reading verses uh, 22 through 30. uh, Excuse me, 22 through 30. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And spread out his hands toward heaven and said, 
O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you, in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant, my, your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servants and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servants and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So Solomon stands before the altar of the Lord with his hands outstretched to heaven. This is how he prays. Now notice, he's not bowing his head, folding his hands, or closing his eyes, though like the way that we often pray today. It was common then to pray with your arms lifted upwards toward the heavens with your eyes open and your hands open uh, to uh, Yahweh, to the heavens, to the skies. Now how you pray, right? Scripture doesn't say you must pray physically in this manner. But oftentimes, our outward posture, the way that we posture ourselves, often forms our inward posture. Because when we pray, what matters is the heart, our inward posture, our spiritual posture before God. And I think sometimes maybe we should often pray more likely like this, with our eyes open, hands outward, because I think we might be more in tune to what we are saying. And I, and I wonder if, what if next Sunday I came here and I prayed like this in front of you all? I think most of you would probably be like, this is a little weird. And admittedly, I would feel a little weird too because it's different. It's not a common practice. But I wonder if by doing this, by closing our eyes as if it's a private moment, we're missing something. Because when we pray as a congregation, it's not a private moment. It's a corporate moment. It's a moment of the body to celebrate. We're going before God, talking to him, and I wonder if we sometimes get too American and we close our eyes, bow our heads, and like, like it's just our business and you can think and do what you want. Just a thought. So maybe next week if I come up here and I do this, if I'm convicted by the Spirit to do it, I'm giving you a heads up. <laughs> Not saying I will, but the Lord, who knows what he has planned. So we also know that Solomon didn't stand for the whole prayer. In verse 54, which we'll cover next week, it uh, mentions that he arose after he gave the prayer. So clearly he wasn't standing the whole time. And then 2 Chronicles 6.13, which is the parallel account of today's passage, mentions that Solomon stood on a bronze platform and then he knelt with his hands stretched up upward. In this intro uh, to his prayer, Solomon praises God, acknowledging there is none like him. And in doing so, he highlights a key characteristic of Yahweh, that is his loving Kindness. This is what you might, you might have heard this Hebrew word before, his kessed love, which uh, essentially means his covenantal faithfulness, his steadfast love. 
So this is a, a truth of God, which is key to who God is. And it was first revealed to Moses in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Now again, if you're looking for verses to memorize, this is a key passage to memorize. Like if you're thinking, what are some of the verses I ought to, to memorize? And all of Scripture, Exodus 34, 6, 7, is most definitely one of them. In fact, it could be argued is one of the key, if not the most key, verse in all the Old Testament. So and when you have this memorized, as you read the Old Testament, you will see this verse pop up over and over and over again as God deals with his people and as he speaks through the prophets. Remember, this is when Moses on Mount Sinai, he asks to see God and God passes before him. And this is what the verses say. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love. So both references there for steadfast love, that's kesed. That's the Hebrew word kesed there. For thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So it is upon this faithfulness, this loving kindness, this kesed love that Solomon's entire prayer is rooted in. Verse 23 says that it, he connects it to those who walk before Yahweh. That Solomon is saying that those who walk before you, those who live before God with all of their hearts, God will be faithful to them. And please do not miss this. There is a group to whom God will be faithful to and a group to whom God will not be faithful to. A group to whom God will show favor and kindness and a group to whom God will show his wrath. It is on the basis of Yahweh's kessed love, his covenantal faithfulness and steadfast love, that Solomon asks God to maintain his Davidic covenant as he has up to this point. It's not rooted in what Israel has done, what Solomon has accomplished. It's not even rooted in the fact that they have built the temple. And this is Solomon's confidence in his prayer. Again, it comes down to the character and the nature of God, specifically his kessed love. And understand that Solomon has this confidence, right? He has this um, assurance, this certainty of his prayer rooted in who God is. He's not arrogant about it. He doesn't presume. He still puts his request before God as that, as requests. He doesn't make presumptions and he doesn't pray presumptuously. And no man should ever pray to God presumptuously. We should never pray to God in declarations, right? Like, I declare this, I declare that. no. It's unbiblical. It's arrogance. The only thing we should declare in our prayer are the praises and who God is. Those are truths, what, we, what has been revealed to us about God. But when we have a need or a request before God, we don't declare them to be. Who are you to do that? You have no place to do that. You go to God humbly before him, and you beseech him, and you ask him to do these. Notice Paul in Philippians 4, 6, or 7, where he says, hey, do not be anxious in anything, but in everything, Present your requests. He doesn't say, and present your declarations to God so that they can happen. No, present your requests. And do so with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Humbly do so. And Solomon models this for us. Solomon doesn't declare anything here. He comes before God in a humble spirit, fully acknowledging that his basis is rooted in who God is, and it's rooted in the Word of God. So he comes to God humbly uh, with these requests. Again, it is an arrogant and deadly thing to presume that we have such standing with God to declare things to be in our lives as if we have any say in the matter. 
Now, having established the faithfulness of God and the basis of which Solomon brings his prayer to Yahweh, Solomon beseeches God to hear this prayer that he's about to put before him this day. Acknowledging that Yahweh does not simply dwell on earth, for neither heaven and earth can contain him, how much less so this magnificent temple that Solomon has built. The very temple of which all of Israel's gathered to celebrate. The very temple that God told Solomon, hey, build this and build it as such. Solomon's like, this thing you had me build for you to dwell in cannot contain you. And it will not contain you. So when, you, when we pray to this temple, hear your prayer. Hear all the prayers of either himself or the people of Israel. Fully acknowledging that God does not need the temple. But the temple and Israel, both of them need God. And though God is not contained in the temple, it is where the people of God in their sin can come and meet with God. It's one of the purposes of the temple. It allows for the people of God to come and meet God, to beseech him, to ask for their needs and the desires to be met in accordance to his word. Looking to the temple is a fulfillment and an act of obedience per the instructions of the law. Deuteronomy 12, 4 through 11. You shall not worship the, the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation, his dwelling there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord has given you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, right? That's a description, as we've talked about, about the reign of Solomon, right? The, the rest and security. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Therefore, Solomon is requesting that God would hear his people whenever they pray toward the temple as they have been given to in light of God's word. In this prayer, Solomon presents seven petitions, seven requests to God. The first petition is distinctly different from the other six. So let's take a look at this first one. This is verses 31 through 32. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. This is a petition by Solomon for God to act righteously when it is not possible for earthly justice to be administered, specifically in the case where there are no witnesses. You have the accuser and the accused, and the accused makes an oath saying, I am innocent. And Solomon's asking, as a king who's expected to met out God's righteous justice, he's asking God to help in this matter. When he himself cannot make a decision, when there are no witnesses, no evidence, that God would hold the person who makes the oath, that he would hold him accountable and according to what he has done, according to his heart, whether he is guilty or innocence. And so this first petition is specific to Solomon in, in how justice is brought on to the land when it cannot be brought out by the hands of mankind. 
Now, moving on to the second petition, verses 33-34, we, we see a common connection. This petition, along with the third and seventh petition, involve the blessings and curses of whether or not Israel obeys the Old Covenant. Uh, you can read about these in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So depending on how Israel obeys the law, certain blessings happen. But if Israel disobeys the law, certain curses, certain consequences will happen. And we'll see, these, uh, we'll see Solomon pray about some of these in the second, third, and seventh petition. So verse 33 and verse 34 for the second petition. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. This petition is a request that God would restore his people if they lose in a battle because of the sin. If they go into battle and they lose, and they lose not simply because of, of of human incompetence, but because of their sin, because as an act of discipline, as an act of consequence for their sin, may he hear their prayer if they repent and that they would, he would restore them. Military defeat is a consequence of covenantal disobedience. Uh, Leviticus 26.17 and Deuteronomy 28.25 speak to this. We'll read the Leviticus verse. It says, I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. This consequence is something that Israel has already experienced a few times in their history. Uh, just consider Israel's defeat by Ai in Joshua 7, or by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4. And note in this request that if, if um, Solomon, when Solomon asks for restoration, for forgiveness, it's not just an unconditional request. He's saying, if you people. There's an if there. And that if can be summed up as faithful repentance. In other words, that's like the whole purpose of these curses and these discipline. They happen because God wants his people to be holy. So he has something bad. He afflicts them with some type of calamity to turn them to him. So if they're not turning to him, Solomon's like, well, well, don't restore them. Restore them only after they have turned to you. Restore them only after your discipline has been effective. And when we talk about repentance, we're talking about a turning away from one's sin, a turning away from a, a, a lifestyle or a, a, a passion, a desire that is unholy, that is unbiblical, that goes against the ways of God, turning away from that and willfully turning towards God's way, God's teachings. Third petition, verses 35, 36. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from this sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. This is a petition to bring about rain after there's been a, a drought. And not just like a regular drought, like a, a seasonal drought or uh, the occasional drought. This is a drought, again, that's brought upon Israel by their sin. Again, one of the curses listed in Leviticus. In Leviticus 26, it's verses 19 and 20. In Deuteronomy 28, it's verses 23 and 24, and we'll read that one. The heaven and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come on you until you are destroyed. 
That's quite the description of a drought. And then, uh, just as a second petition, uh, I mean, the third petition, just like the second petition, is a petition that is, is connected uh, on the connection, excuse me, petition that's connected to the condition that God's people are to repent. If they don't repent, if they don't turn to God, if they don't learn his ways, if they don't go that way, don't end the drought. Only end the drought, only if they turn to you. And then we have the fourth petition, verses 37 through 40. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. This petition is one seeking forgiveness and for God to act accordingly to each person's heart in light of any calamity that may befall them. And note, there is no mention of these calamities necessarily being a result of sin. Solomon leaves the door open for that to be a possibility, but there's nowhere in this petition that connects to these calamities to be connected to covenantal unfaithfulness. Solomon is saying anytime there's any type of calamity, any type of affliction that befalls on your people, hear their prayer according to their hearts. Right? So God will know the heart of the person and he will respond accordingly. Sometimes these calamities will be an act of discipline from God. Sometimes they will be a consequence of covenantal unfaithfulness. Other times it's just a consequence of a fallen world. And Solomon, in verse 40, he adds a motive for God to do this, a reason for why God should hear their prayers from his dwelling place in heaven, why he should respond to them accordingly. He says, so that they may fear you, that they may fear you all the days that they live. Solomon's saying, if you answer this prayer, it's for the purpose that they would fear you. And as Deuteronomy 10.12 tells us, fearing Yahweh essentially leads to faithful service, to faithful uh, living. To fear the Lord your God is to walk in all his ways, is to love him, and is to serve Yahweh with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. Essentially, God is glorified when people fear him. Then we have the fifth petition, verses 41 through 43. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So, sticking to the audience of individual prayers, um, Solomon connects this petition to Gentiles, to non-Israelites, to foreigners. This is almost like a, um, a, a prayer of uh, rooted in missions of reaching the nations for God's glory. This petition is not rooted in Solomon's sake. He's not asking that his, his name be made known, but that Yahweh's glory would be made known, that Yahweh's sake would be served here. And Solomon, again, in this petition, there's no connection here to the Old Covenant. There's no connection to sin. Because again, for especially foreigners and non-Israelites, they don't submit to 
the, the old covenant to the law, unless they come in after, you know, after the sojourn in the land and they join the nation. But Solomon is extending this to people beyond the borders of Israel, beyond those who have committed themselves uh, to the covenants. So again, this is just a general prayer for any type of condition that a foreigner might present. And Solomon is perhaps considering the faithful foreigners of Israel's past and ancestry, which there is no lack. Consider Jethro, the Midianite, who was Moses' father-in-law in Exodus 18. Or Rahab, the prostitute, who hid the spies in Joshua 2. Or Ruth, the Moabite, directly in uh, Solomon's ancestry. And possibly Solomon's even thinking of King Hiram of Tyre, another foreigner, and a foreigner who helped build the temple. Now we have the sixth petition, verses 44 through 45. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. This petition is for military success in the situation in which God has ordained, in which God is the one who has sent them to fight. In those moments, Solomon pleads with God to hear the prayers of his people. Hear the prayers of your soldiers and maintain their cause. Then we have the seventh and final petition, verses 46 through 51. Perhaps the most significant petition of all of them, especially to the Israelite 400 years later who is in exile in Babylon in the very situation of which Solomon speaks of in this petition. And we'll include the final two verses of our passage um, as well to finish it out. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their hearts in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captives, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their hearts and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, who carry them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all the transgressions they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them ca- captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servants, to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses, your servants, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt. O Lord God. This final petition is that God will hear his people when they are taken captive and exiled from the promised land. Leviticus 26, verses 38 to 39, is one of several verses mentioning the exile. It reads, You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. And Deuteronomy has the exile verses scattered throughout as well in chapter 28. Yet regardless of Israel's sin, and this is significant sin, I mean, it leads to the most significant consequence of, of, of covenantal disobedience. Despite this sin, Solomon still appeals to God's faithfulness. He still appeals to God's kessed love, that if the people repent with all their hearts, 
that God would hear them, that God would deliver them, that God would bless them, that he would extend passion to them, even by their captives, even within the land of which they are captive. And again, this isn't a plea that's made out of desperation. This is not a novel plea either. It's not like Solomon was kind and compassionate and he thought of his plea himself. But Yahweh, God himself, commanded this to be. Leviticus 26, the verses, following the verses we just read, verses 40 through 42. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, that's the exile, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. So Solomon's plea is one that's rooted in the word of God, a plea based on what God has already said he would do. And it's not always good for us to bring up the past. It's not always good for us to wallow in our own past, or even sometimes the church's past. But when it comes to the past of God's work, to the past of God's word, it is a good thing. Note how Solomon ends his final petition and how he ends his prayer. It's related to how he started the prayer. Solomon begins at the beginning. Solomon looks back to the past of Israel to recall and bring to mind for himself, for Israel's sake, as well as bring to mind to God's mind what God has already done. And whatever good is to come in the future must come from the same place that it has come from in the past. Right? We must not look to the future and consider, well, how can we get God's grace? How can we get God's mercy so that we can enjoy it? What novel ways or what fads must we cling to to get it? No, we look to the past and we consider, how has God given out? How has he meted out his grace and mercy and his favor to those who are faithful to him? So we look to the past to see how we can get it in the future out of the grace and mercy of Yahweh's nature and his purposes for his people. In this recalling of what God has done, Solomon also points out that Israel, God's people, they have been set apart. They've been set apart for Yahweh's sake, for Yahweh's glory. This happened when God delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. God, having set his people apart for his name, he will not allow his, his people to disappear. He will not allow his name to disappear forever from the face of the earth. He will maintain his people. He will maintain his cause with his people. He will keep a remnant for his sake. And in light of that truth, Solomon pleads with God to hear their prayers for forgiveness and restoration when they sin, if, if they repent. So how does this deal with us today? Right, we're not under the old covenants. Well, let us consider what Solomon's main need is in this prayer. What is he exactly looking for? What is he seeking from God? God's favor, God's presence, God's blessing, from which flows peace, joy, and life, regardless of circumstance. A thing that is rooted in the actions and character of God himself, which Solomon connects and is which makes sense, is rooted in the Exodus event. Right? Remember, the Exodus event is an act of grace that preceded the giving of the law. And do we not desire the same thing? Do we not need the same thing? God's presence, God's favor, God's blessing in our lives. And can we not expect to have it? 
Can we not expect that God would favor us, that God would bless us, that he would be with us if we walk in accordance to his word in all our ways? Have we not, like Israel, been set apart as God's people, having been grafted in via the new covenant by his gracious work and blessing? Were we not born again by his power, by his spirit, made into a new creation? Are we not holy because our Father in heaven has sent his spirit to dwell within us, just as Yahweh had the Ark of the Covenant representing his presence dwell with Israel? Does that not, as Israel was, make us a witness of who God is, make us a witness of God's name? Then should we not only desire to live holy lives so we can continue to experience the blessing of his dwelling within us, but also desire God to be faithful to protect his name, his reputation, his witness, to help us glorify him by being blessed with his presence and favor as he hears our prayers, as he walks with us and does not abandon us even if we sin, even as the Israelite went into exile. And as Solomon pointed out in verse 46, there is no one who does not sin. So when we go astray, and we all have gone astray, we must look to the name of Jesus Christ, to the person, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Just as Israel was called to look to the designated place for deliverance, we too are called to look to the designated person, the designated name of which there is no other name that can save but the name of Jesus Christ, so that all who look to him may be restored in right relationship with the Father and taught the way of which we must walk. And in doing so, we have this hope Just as the exiles of Israel, by reading and hearing these words of Solomon, they had hope that God will one day return to gather his people, to judge the nations, and to dwell among us forever, and to restore the land. And this is our confidence. This is how we know that this hope applies to us, the basis of which we can go to God and make a similar prayer. Just as Solomon bookend his prayer with the exodus event in the beginning, the exodus event at the end, Just as God, how through the prophets to Israel, as he kept warning them, he kept reminding them, listen to me, I am the God who delivered you from the hand of Pharaoh. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is why you listen to me. This is why you trust me. And that this is our confidence. We too must do the same. We must look back. Just as Israel is called to look back to their Exodus events, we must do the same. However, though, our Exodus events is not the Red Sea Passage. It's our baptism. For when we were baptized, it was a public proclamation to the world as affirmed by the church that we are his and the world no longer holds us, that we are no longer enslaved to the ways of the world. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer captive to sin. Yes, we believed and we were saved before baptism, just as the people of Israel were God's people before the Red Sea. But in passing through the Red Sea, It was made known to all who witnessed the event and heard of the event that Israel no longer belonged to Egypt. You want a public baptism, I think passing a part in the sea is pretty public. There are going to be witnesses of that. That's no small thing. It was made clear that Israel, they're no longer slaves to Egypt. They're no longer serving Pharaoh. They serve Yahweh. And just as our baptism was preceded by our justification, by our regeneration, by our salvation, So is Israel's. Remember the key exodus event that happened prior to the Red Sea. Passover, 
the covering of the doorposts and the lamb's blood so that death would pass over God's people, the people who trusted the blood of the lamb. They were the ones that walked through the Red Sea. So too it is with us. Though we look back to our baptism to remember God's work, our baptism doesn't point us to the Red Sea or to Egypt. It points us to the cross. Again, an event that happens before our baptism where the Lamb of God shed his blood for our sins that we may be justified by faith in him. So we must look back. We must look back to look ahead. When we are uncertain, when we are discouraged, when we are perhaps unsure of our own salvation, or maybe we look at the world and we're like, what is going on? It's, it's, it's just, it's all just going to, it's just horrible, right? Things are out of control. It's, it's spinning out of control. You don't know how to handle the anxiety that you're feeling. You don't know what the dark days ahead uh, contain. Well, you know what contains your relationship with God by looking back to what God has already done. So we look back. We look back to when we were born again, which, is, which was affirmed by Hope Community Church, which was affirmed by the local church that baptized you, and which is reaffirmed every week. This is why we do communion every, every week. Because all of this, our baptism and our communion, it points us back to the cross. It points us back to Calvary. It points us back to what God has already done. And when we come to the table, we do this as a body. We affirm one another that we are saved, that we've been delivered, that we've been justified by the blood of Christ. And we do this, right? We come, again, we come to the table every week so that very least we can be reminded of God's work and we can be reminded of what's to come. Communion points us to the cross, the shed blood of the Lamb, but it also points to us that one day Christ is going to return. He's going to set an actual table. There's going to be actual wine and food, and the bride of Christ, the church, is going to gather. They're going to celebrate his return, and he will judge the righteous, and he will judge the wicked. And so we trust the goodness of God. And the goodness of God is only available to those who repent of their sins. And if you've repented of your sins, you know you're forgiven. Again, you know that because you can look back to your baptism. You can look further back to the cross, to what Christ has done on the cross. There's no need, right? Christ died. He said it is finished. There's no need that once you sin, after you've accepted Christ, that once you've sinned, that you need to somehow earn your favor back with Christ. There's no need to think of new ways to, well, I've done this. How do I restore myself with Christ? You, you, you repent, just as Solomon, just as it was in the day of Solomon, it's the same for the days to today. You repent, you turn your heart to God. You don't need to partake of sacraments to be forgiven. You just need to confess and repent. You don't need to confess to a, a priest. You don't need to pay indulgences. You don't need to do any work of man to be forgiven by Christ. You just need to confess and turn away from that lifestyle. So at this time, Matt will come up and he'll minister communion uh, I'll close, I'll close in prayer, and then after that, take a moment to pray, uh, confess any sin that you're holding on to, and if you are not holding on to any sin of which you um, have not repented of, you are welcome to come to the table to be encouraged, to be reminded of what Christ, what God has done for us in the past, and what we have to look forward to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this blessing. We thank you that you are patient with us, as you were with your people, Israel. We thank you that you have given us uh, this example, that you've given us these words uh, of Solomon through your word. Help us to respond appropriately to these words. Help us to meditate on them night and day. 
Help us to always have your words, your statutes, your commands before us. Help us to regularly ponder the gospel, the good news that the Son of Man came to die so that we would be saved, that we would be forgiven. Help us to look to the cross anytime we, we doubt ourselves, uh, when we are perhaps struggling with anxiety or depression. Help us to look to the cross. Help us to look to the church, our brothers and sisters of Christ, who encourage us, who affirm us. Help us to consider the day we were wet. Help us to consider the taste of the cracker and the juice, Father, that we're about to partake in this morning. And I ask that you'd bless these elements so that as we go out today, as we go out, whatever the world, whatever life, whatever you uh, have ordained to afflict us or come before us, Father, that we would not forget the taste of the gospel, that we would not forget the taste of the cracker or the juice in our mouths, Father. And we will be reminded that we are yours forever, that your Holy Spirit dwells within us and you will maintain your cause within us. So we ask that you would help us to walk in the light, that you would help us to be filled by the Holy Spirit, that we would seek your ways, that we would have an appetite for righteousness and holiness and not for the ways of this world. Keep us from temptation so that we do not fall into it, Father. Give us the, the means to which we can escape it, deliver it, and when we do sin, Father, help us to come back to you, recognizing we can and we can do so confidently, not because of anything that we have done, anything that we will do, but purely by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ by the blood that he has shed and the grace that you have bestowed upon us. Father, I ask that as we come to the table this morning that we would consider what awaits us and that we would be encouraged that those who are saved, those who look to the name of Jesus Christ, we are saved, we are delivered, that regardless of what the future might hold for us, Father, whatever pain, whatever suffering we may incur, we have an eternity of glory that awaits us. And so, Father, we anxiously look forward to the day when Jesus Christ would return and we ask that he would come and he would come quickly. But in the meantime, as we wait for that day, help us to be holy as you've called us to be holy. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be the witnesses of your good word to those who are lost so that none would perish. Father, we ask all these things for your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.